The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Nourish your mind with a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Visit irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Politics Friday Brexit Special. I'm Pat Leahy. Well, it's been a busy week in Brexit. The EU granted a further extension of the Brexit deadline to the UK until January the 31st of next year. Boris Johnson, who said he would rather be dead in a ditch, remains alive and unditched. But he has, at long last, got the general election he has craved since becoming Prime Minister. Consequently, the fate of Brexit now depends on the result of that election. To discuss this in a little while, I'll be joined by our Europe editor, Paddy Smith, in Brussels. But first, I'm delighted to say we're joined from London by the new statesman's suspiciously Irish-sounding political correspondent, Patrick McGuire. Patrick, thanks for joining us. You've been observing Nigel Farage's election launch this morning, at which he pledged to contest every constituency if Boris Johnson doesn't do a deal with him. What do you make of it so far? Indeed. Well, it was always inevitable that there would be no pact between the Tories and the Brexit party, despite what, before Boris struck his deal, um, you had voices like Steve Baker, Mark Francois, you know, the the leaders of the so-called Spartans who voted against May's deal at every time of asking, saying the only way we can survive is if we strike a deal um, with Farage and give him a clear run at the northern seats uh, where we, you know, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings think they can win these northern uh, Brexit voting seats, but the cultural aversion to the Tories is so strong um, that it's never going to happen. Um, but since uh, Johnson struck his deal, uh, the and got unanimous support from it from every Conservative MP, which was quite something, the idea of a pact uh, with the Brexit Party has been the dog that hasn't barked. You know, there's no mainstream desire for it within the Conservative Party. Farage's price, which is you've got to put no deal on your manifesto, is a complete non-starter because it totally blows to bits this idea that voting for Johnson is the only way to get Brexit over the line and this deal over the line. So, you know, given all of that, it was inevitable that there would be no pact and Farage wants to be on the telly and he's not going to be on the telly and he's not going to get any airtime unless he contests all 650 seats. Now, what that means electorally is a different kettle of fish. Can he, how badly can he hurt uh, Boris Johnson and and I suppose the related question, how badly could he hurt Jeremy Corbyn in those northern leave-inclined seats? Well, it's funny you should mention Jeremy Corbyn because I'm, I'm, I'm giving this, I'm speaking to you uh, from outside my flats in Islington and Jeremy Corbyn is my local MP and he's doing a photo shoot right in front of me, which is uh, quite something. But anyway... Well, we, appreci- much- we appreciate having contributors with that sort of a Tony address. <laughs> I know. But how, how much, it's an interesting question, how much can the uh, Brexit Party hurt Boris Johnson. The conventional logic says the more Brexit Party voters there are, the more the Leave vote is split, etc., etc. You know, if you have two parties scrapping out for the Leave vote, then it can only have one way for the Tories, which is badly. But there is a counterintuitive view, which I suspect is the right one, which is in lots of seats in the north of England, say 
take for example Ashfield, which is the the, the archetype of the seats the Tories want to take in this example, you know, uh, take in this election. Ex not ex mining uh, town in Nottinghamshire, Labour majority of four hundred of the Tories. Um, what the Tories need is to obviously flip a load of Labour voters, but it's really unusual that Labour voters, even if they voted Leave, switch directly to the Tories. Um, so in those sorts of seats, a Brexit Party candidate could mop up support from the Labour Party and allow the Tories to come through the middle. It's like a gateway drug for not voting mm-hmm. Labour. They're not going to go straight to the Conservatives, but they might vote for a, you know, uh, you know, they might vote for Farage. So really, in first past the post, it doesn't necessarily matter if, you know, Johnson gets less than the 44% uh, that May got in 2017, and he hasn't united the Leave vote as well. It's where he is hurt most or where Labour is hurt most by these votes. Um, and in the northern seats, he wants to flip and that will win or lose this election. It's quite possible the Brexit party will help him. And, but there isn't, there is an attendant danger in other seats for, uh, for Labour, I suppose, is that just as the Brexit party may split the, uh, the, the, the Leave vote and the Tories uh, may, may split off support from the Tories, that the Lib Dems in the south may... Uh, take votes from uh, as a more unashamedly remain focused party with a clearer remain message that they could take votes and seats from Labour. Is that much of a danger for Corbyn? Yes, and the big the big danger for Corbyn is that he can't repeat what he pulled off in 2017, which was as much as Labour. Uh, Labour MPs will tell you it was all about their radical manifesto and their economic programme. Really, what that election was, was a straight leave remain fight. And Labour successfully uh, united the remain vote around its banner. Uh, and now, obviously, the great known unknown in all that is the resurgence of the Lib Dems. Um, again, that's a risk for the Tories because in, in, in their sort of leafy seats in the shires, they might lose more of those to the Lib Dems than they win seats from Labour in the north. But... So there is a big risk for Labour there, especially in sort of in London seats where the Lib Dems are, are targeting quite heavily. But the more Boris Johnson bangs on about this election, his new line is this an election between getting Brexit done and between two referendums uh, on, on Brexit again and on Scottish independence. But the more he bangs on about that and the more he casts Corbyn as the candidate of a second referendum, the higher his chances and the more optimistic even the most hardened Corbyn sceptic remainers on Jeremy Corbyn's backbenches. Uh, the more optimistic they get that actually you can pull off a 2017 star thing again because you are the natural Remain party uh, for Remainers to go for in most constituencies in the country. And, you know, people vote tactically for Lib Dems elsewhere. Uh, so really, it's a double-edged sword for Johnson painting Corbyn um, you know, as the candidate of dither and delay because that will only increase his stock among the Remainers who are uh, not his number one fan right now. It, it seems to me, and this is something perhaps that we're more used to in this country than, uh, uh, than in, in the UK, is that there's a massive importance now attached to tactical voting. Uh, yes. Do you expect the, the parties to, you know, to try and turn that to their uh, advantage in individual constituencies because it will require individual messages tailored for individual constituencies, won't it? So in some seats, it's more straightforward than others. Take you know, seats in the London commuter belt uh, that have historically been Tory-held. There's no chance of Labour winning those seats. The Lib Dems are in contention in a lot of them. So really, it's not in Labour's interest to run a, to go hard against the Lib Dems in those seats. You know, they're not, they're never going to say, do a formal sort of vote for Joe Swinson's candidate here. Mm -hmm. But will they, you know, 
pour resources into them? No, of course not. That's really silly. The problem on the other side is that most of Joe Swinton and the Liberal Democrats' targets are Tory-facing. And obviously, as in they're trying to win them from the Tories, and obviously um, they want to win as many seats as possible. And obviously they have the other objective, which is stopping Brexit. But they can't win seats without, uh, without bashing Corbyn. In, in most of their targets. So the more they bash Corbyn, yes, the more chance they have of getting tactical Tory switches in those seats. Um, but the louder they are about Corbyn's lack of Remain credentials, then paradoxically, the more that harms their attempts to cobble together a, re- a majority for a second referendum in the next parliament, because they're just reminding Remain voters that Corbyn is, isn't kosher, uh, probably a bad choice of word, um, given the other scandal afflicting the Labour Party, but that Corbyn isn't, isn't, isn't sort of, you know, particularly strong on the question of a second referendum. So, yeah, as you say, it's a sort of four-dimensional game of chess. And what makes sense for one party in one seat makes tactical sense, but strategically it is probably going to harm the campaign for a second referendum in the next parliament. I read your uh, piece in The Statesman uh, about uh, Dominic Cummings stepping back from the active management of the Tory campaign. And I I, I wonder, just to broaden that out a little bit, what sort of shape are the two main uh, parties in, in terms of their campaign machines? Are they ready to go? Or are you seeing what often happens when an election is called this mad scramble to get things, uh, to, to get things activated and to get people motivated? So, yeah, the Tories have been in campaign mode since uh, since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister. That mm. explains why Dominic Cummings, you know, the uh, most Tories would say that the finest political campaigner of his generation is in Downing Street because essentially the first act of Boris Johnson's premiership has been a prelude uh, to a general election campaign. Um, and in coming stepping aside, they've learned from one of the big mistakes of May's catastrophic campaign in 2017, which is you've got to know who the boss is, so Cummings won't be running it. Um, Isaac Levido, one of Linton Crosby's Australian protégés, will be running it. So they, the Tories know exactly what they want. Um, they've got their target seats. They've got their message, which Boris Johnson has been banging on about since day one. You know, more police, more money for the NHS, get Brexit done, um, and you, you know, and you and you bash Corbyn and all of that. Whereas the Labour Party, as was the case in 2017, start uh, yes, they're campaign ready, and they've got loads of union money, and they've got half a million members who, you know, boost the coffers. But really, again, we have a classic Labour divide, which is you have. The, the inner circle of Cormans' leadership who want to be really ambitious, they want to run a 99% strategy, which is target every seat with a radical domestic agenda. And then, interestingly, you have Corbyn's longest-standing ally, John McDonnell, who has rather softened uh, over the past few years, want to run a more conventional, not so much defensive, but very targeted, more conventional, less populist campaign on a, you know on a select few seats. And that mirrors what we had at the last uh, before the last Labour campaign, which was you had the Corbynite uh, new bloods who were like, let's take it to the country. And you had the old guard uh, who predated Corbyn's leadership Labour HQ saying this election is an exercise in damage limitation. And we have a similar dynam- dynamic at play there. And obviously, for a party to succeed in the campaign, it has to move and think as one. So it's whether the Labour Party can sort of patch things together and decide what its message is, i.e., do you just go hell for leather for a main vote? Not really sure that Corbyn is up for that. Um, or do you, you know, do the divisions, you know, rip your campaign apart as they did with Theresa May and her, you know, multiple power bases within the campaign last time? If, if the elec- election is about, above all other things, Brexit, and I suppose 
that remains to be seen. Uh, to what extent does that function as an advantage for the Tories because Johnson has this very direct, very clear message on Brexit? Well, that is, that is the question. And that is, that, his gamble is that making this election, first and foremost, a question of do you want Brexit to stop, uh, you know, as well as the Leave vote, do you just want to pull the lever that makes this, makes this intractable issue that you are sick of hearing about and is sucking the life out of your policies go away? But again, paradoxically, the more he makes it about Brexit, the clearer the question in the, remi- uh, in the minds of Remain voters is. And if anything is going to boost Jeremy Corbyn, it is the idea that he, more than anyone else, despite voters' multiple misgivings about him, is the only person that can answer this very, very specific question. Because, you know, first-past-the-post elections in this country are always about one question if you're a progressive voter. Do you want a Tory MP or not? Um, and now, that if Boris Johnson makes the question, "Do you want Brexit or not?" Well, he is the only party, uh, he is the only party leader advocating a negotiated Brexit, and everybody else is advocating flavours of Remain or an option in Jeremy Corbyn's case of giving you another bite of the Remain cherry. So, yes, uh, Johnson will hope that clarifies the question in the minds of Leave voters, but he doesn't want an equal. He wants to avoid an equal and opposite reaction from Remain voters. And that's the risk the more you bang on about Brexit. And does Johnson's well-advertised history of treachery, both politically and, uh, and, and personally, to what extent is that, or do you expect that to be a factor? I mean, his latest act, you know, the dumping of the DUP, signing up to the border in the Irish Sea that he previously said no Conservative leader or no British Prime Minister could do. Is that all like chaff in the wind now? Does it matter? Well, maybe not the, maybe not the particular, you know, the, the vagaries of his conduct in the Brexit debate, but it's certainly true that his character will be a massive, a massive uh, question in this election. Um, Sorry, fellow singing beside me. Oh. Uh, well, feel free uh, to join in if you if you need to. Yeah, I yeah, know. Um, so yeah, it's, character will be a big, big question. This is why this election is so interesting because uh, both main party leaders are so uniquely impossible, uh, unpopular, and have you know, as far as each side would be concerned, uh, lots of character defects. But we can expect it. You know, Corbyn is already speaking, uh, going hard on the idea of Johnson as a privileged, born to rule. Uh, slightly feckless, uh, uncaring, uh, posho, basically. And that is a message ho- honed, you know, that's laser-focused at those Leave voters in Labour constituencies who voted Labour all their life, voted for Brexit in 2016, just to remind them that this election is broader than Brexit. And even though Boris Johnson is saying, I'm going to get you the policy you really care about, um, that he's just a Tory at the end of the day. And so, yeah, character will feature you know, really heavily in this election. because, And also, that goes for Corbyn as well. Um, you know, obviously, you'll hear lots about his historic links with uh, nasty people from all around the world as the Tories, uh, the Tories have always uh, went, gone hard on throughout his leadership. But interestingly, a more potent attack line, they think, is this idea of Corbyn as the agent of dither and delay. Because in focus groups uh, and polling, it all shows that when voters think about Corbyn, they don't dislike him because... Uh, he's extreme, as some Tory MPs seem to think, you know, when they call him a Marxist extremist or whatever, it's because they think he just looks a bit shabby and incompetent. So, again, uh, Boris will go very hard on that, just as Corbyn goes very hard on this idea of him as a, you know, callous posho. 
Last question, uh, Patrick. To what extent do you think that the objections of the DUP to the the current withdrawal agreement, the revised withdrawal agreement, the position of the North, the prospect of this trade border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, will that Pay, play, would that play a, a big role or, or, or any role at all in the election campaign? Um, to the extent that the DUP have figured in political discourse um, or sort of partisan political discourse in Great Britain has been Jeremy Corbyn using them as a stick with which to um, remind voters that the Tories aren't particularly pleasant. So you hear all about the, you know, essentially he will say he's propped up by these dinosaurs um, from you know from Northern Ireland, so I don't think it will feature particularly heavily in the GB campaign. And the awkward thing for the DUP, of course, uh, Ian Paisley Jr. Uh, discovered this uh, when he was questioning Johnson in the chamber the other day. Is that this election, and Johnson is freely admitting this, is happening because he doesn't want them to matter anymore? Um, you know, Ian Paisley Jr. said, "Will you confirm that you will go back to Brussels and renegotiate the Northern Ireland Protocol if you win this election?" And Johnson said, "No, this election is about." getting a majority for my deal. Um, so that's the really awkward question. Um, for the, that's the really awkward thing for the DUP uh, in this election. And obviously, but they in the, in the North will use it to motivate um, their own voters. But obviously, again, you have the EUP sending more bellicose than they ever have, uh, or certainly in, in recent memory on, on this question, uh, of you know, Boris's duplicitous and the, the DUP as his willing dupes. So certainly around the literally on the on the edge of this campaign in those 18 constituencies, yes, it's likely to matter. And given how volatile the polling pictures are, again, Northern Ireland and those 18 constituencies, and just how uh, this betrayal of the DUP and, and specifically who is blamed for it, how that goes down could again determine uh, the, the shape of the next parliament, who can form the next government, and what Brexit, scenario, uh, what Brexit outcome it can get through the Commons, if any at all. Patrick, you're very good to join us on a busy campaign day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pat. It's time to focus on what matters. Nourish your mind with Headspace and the Irish Times. Headspace connects you to yourself. The Irish Times connects you to the truth. Headspace gives you a healthy perspective. The Irish Times gives you a wider perspective. Take a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Pause. Breathe. Focus. Subscribe at irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, well, to discuss how this is being viewed in Brussels, we have our Europe editor, Paddy Smith, on the line. Hi, Paddy. Hi. You have been analysing, I suppose, the potential outcomes of the British general election and what they might mean uh, for Brexit. You have identified five possible outcomes. So let's go through them one by one. Yeah, five, five and a half. There are slight other variations, but the main ones are as follows. And the thing it has to be said immediately is that the British electoral system being so um, eccentric in terms of representation, uh, none of these is ruled out. uh, And some of them are more likely than others, but they're certainly all of them plausible uh, scenarios. So first, we would start with a simple uh, Tory majority. Uh, They could go back to the Commons then, vote on uh, Boris Johnson's deal and uh, leave on January the 31st. That, if you like, is the most simple uh, outcome in terms of uh, uh, of Brexit. Uh, Then you could have a Tory 
and Brexit Party uh, majority government. Mm -hmm. uh, that could only happen, the, the Brexit Party made this morning absolutely clear, if the Tories abandon Boris's uh, deal, which they say is a no, uh, is, is not Brexit. They say it's, it, uh, they would, they suggested this morning, um, to my surprise, actually, uh, that they would look for an extension to uh, July to do a free tr trade deal with uh, the European Union. Um, I think the European Council, the leaders, are likely to say that that actually is the same thing as saying no deal. Uh, and therefore, it is quite likely that they wouldn't get an extension on, on those conditions. So there would and be a crash out on the 31st of January. That's, I, that's my view of, of what would happen there. Then there's the possibility of a Labour majority government. Um, Labour has said it wants to renegotiate with full agreement and, uh, and then put it to a referendum. Uh, this is a this particular scenario, if you like, could be a Labour majority or a Labour Lib Dem majority. Mm -hmm. The Lib Dems would probably have to accept renegotiation of the withdrawal agreement. They would look for an extension to June, according to Corbyn, who says that the deal could be done by then. Oh, but uh, surely, Paddy, did I not hear EU leaders uh, saying earlier this week that there could be no renegotiation of the withdrawal agreement. Uh, they did, and, and that's quite interesting. I spoke to, to Michel Barnier in the course of the week after a declaration which was very categorical by the leaders saying that there could be no uh, uh, renegotiation of the withdrawal agreement. Uh, Barnier was slightly more nuanced about it. He, I thought he left he was, the door open in that interview with you, he, did he not? He, he, did, he, he didn't actually say, yes, we could renegotiate it, but he did go to some length to explain why it was that they had reopened it previously uh, for Boris Johnson after saying that there wouldn't be a renegotiation. Uh, so I think that the, the truth is the leaders are so determined not to be seen to be closing the door on Britain, to be forcing them out, uh, that, that the likelihood is that a Labour government um, with a different mandate uh, committed to a, an agreement which would include a, a customs union membership and, and, and regulatory alignment, uh, that that is something that a council, the, the council would probably look at, and therefore they could possibly uh, allow an extension and a renegotiation. Labour would then uh, put the result of that negotiation uh, to a, a referendum, and um, the funny thing is that it might or might not uh, urge support for it, and Corbyn himself might or might not urge support. For, for, the, for the results. And the rather... choice in this referendum, Paddy, would be between Labour's New Deal and Remain. That's, that's, that's right. And so it would part... be between a soft Brexit and no Brexit, effectively. Yes, that's, that's right. And a large part of the uh, British Labour Party would, would swing, certainly, whether or not the leadership would behind Remain. So you, you would have this strange situation where the party would be campaigning against its own uh, deal quite likely anyway. So that's four of the that, that's uh, uh, potential I may outcomes. Say so it's, it's three and a half. Okay. Uh, a, the, a fourth one is a Liberal Democrat majority, which again I, I stress the strangeness of the British electoral system. It's going to be possible in many seats to win a seat with 30, 31 percent of of the vote because the vote is split so many different ways. So it is theoretically possible for the Lib Dems with perhaps the Scottish Nationalists to achieve majority, in which case you would have an Article 50 repeal without mm -hmm. a referendum uh, and no Brexit. 
uh, that that, if you like, is another very simple, straightforward um, option, and and could all be resolved before January the 31st. And finally, uh, there is a no majority scenario in which uh, there is no majority for or against uh, Brexit, a stalemate like we have at, at the present time. Uh, Commons deadlocked on uh, a withdrawal agreement vote on, on Boris Johnson's uh, withdrawal agreement, which is the only one on the table at the moment. And there, if the Commons asked for another extension, uh, I, I think we would be in a very difficult position because... That presumably is then, sorry to interrupt, but that presumably is their nightmare scenario as far as Brussels is concerned. It is because uh, they um, Macron's argument that there's no point in giving these people another another extension because they just fritter it away and they won't do anything with it, would certainly come to the fore. And my view is, and this is something that I haven't really been able to test, a uh, lot of officials here are being very, very quiet about options. But my view in that case is that an extension would only be granted uh, by the leaders if there was a solid commitment by the Commons uh, that 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 uh, it would go to a referendum, uh, something which the Tories would would uh, absolutely hate. And in um, the absence of the Commons being able to give that sort of an assurance from the uh, to the EU, would we then see the EU saying we have reached the end of the line here? We're not extending. Out you go. Uh, I think that's quite likely. I think the, the Macron argument is becomes then really quite strong um, because every option has been explored. It's, it's the old Sherlock Holmes thing that if you're looking for a solution uh, to a particularly intractable problem, you try every, every possible solution. And then uh, however improbable and unlikely what is left is, is the solution. And however unpleasant, because that would be an unpleasant crushing out no deal scenario. It seems to me that the, what the EU is looking for above anything is resolution, certainty, one way, or the, one way or another. Stay, go, but make up your mind. Because, I mean, we've been attending summits for the last three years now and EU business and all the other things which it believes to be important and the other progress that it wants to make on its own reforms and its place in the world and so forth has taken a back seat to Brexit. I, I think that's right. And I think I, we're hearing increasingly noises from uh, from business about how actually all, all this postponement and postponement is, is expensive to them because they're making decisions about their, how their, their goods are going to be put together, how their goods are going to be, uh, where they're going to source uh, supplies. Uh, they're having to stockpile. In, in Britain, we hear a lot of stories about businesses stockpiling at great expense. Uh, and, and so an, another extension and the possible other extension after that is something that is really very difficult for business. I think the main uh, preoccupation of Brussels, of the European uh, Union leaders, is to have an interlocutor who they can actually rely on and who, when they say, this is a deal that we can live with and this is one we will go with, can actually see that through. Because the problem has been all the way through is that the Tories have repeatedly said, yeah, that's fine, we'll put it to the Commons and uh, we'll go with that. And then the Commons have thrown it out. So that's the that's the real problem, is, is an interlocutor who is actually capable of delivering. 
And in a neat symmetry, the next European Council, if I'm not mistaken, will be meeting just as word of the election result comes through from London. So yeah, it, will, yeah. it will indeed. It will make for, for a very interesting meeting. Uh, I'm not sure how many of us will be watching the agenda uh, of the uh, the council. The, the, the 12th, so it will actually be happening during the British election and going through uh, to the first results. Well, we will await with uh, some interest the outcome on both of those, those counts. Uh, Paddy, thank you very much for joining us. We will talk to you again soon. And that's it for today and for this week. My thanks to producer Declan Conlon. You'll catch us next week and every week.